0: Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The confirmation hearings for Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson are now in our rearview mirror. And thanks to Senator Ben Sass, Republican from Nebraska, we all have a new word in our vocabulary, and that is Jack Assery. But more seriously, Judge Jackson seems to be on track to be the court's first Black female justice, even if she is likely to be confirmed by a very slim margin. And even if we hadn't had well over 24 hours of confirmation hearings this week, it still would have been a big week in Supreme Court news. So joining me to talk about all of this are James Ramoser, SCOTUS Blog's editor, and Katie Barlow, who serves double duty as the blog's media editor and The chief legal correspondent for fox 5 news james and katie thanks for joining me hi amy hi thanks for having me so let's start let's set the stage in terms of our coverage of the hearings with sort of planes trains and automobiles katie you were in the hearing room itself
1: i was and it was um an interesting week and there was lots of drama i think on the final day that she was in the room Um, We really ran the spectrum of human emotion from um, yelling and anger to tears to very clear pride from some senators. There was just a lot of intensity, but it was also um, great to see, you know, just how that process works up close. I haven't been in that room since the Kagan confirmations, and it was mostly full. The staffers were rotating in. And um, the seats were, were constantly full of people who just wanted, I imagine, to glimpse uh, the historic nature of that moment for a while. And it was just really um, a, a fascinating week. The first day is always the most, um, I'm always amazed at whoever the nominee is, at their ability to sit quietly while senators do their senator thing and talk for the entire day. And uh, she did that, of course, before we got to hear from her for a brief moment at the end. Uh, but the stamina that that takes to, to sit with very little facial expression. I'm always impressed with the same with, with Amy Coney Barrett most recently too. So it was it was fun to be in the room and, and there was a lot going on as we saw, as we'll get into.
0: And James, you were watching at home and organizing the blog's coverage of the hearing. So what what was your takeaway in terms of how that worked out. You were watching it the way many Americans were watching it.
2: Yeah, it was really interesting because, um, you know, you, Amy and Katie were both, you know, in the room. I was watching on C-SPAN and it is quite a different perspective. Uh, There was at one point when, Katie and I were kind of just messaging on Slack about you know you know bits of her testimony, and, you know, and Katie, like as you were watching from the gallery, I think you kind of pointed out, you you kind of said from your perspective, maybe she didn't seem that effective or that forceful in responding to some of the criticisms from Republicans. And I remember having a completely different reaction because I was watching her face on close up, uh, from the view from the cameras, and to me, just watching her facial expressions, I think, um, made her come across as extremely earnest, extremely effective, extremely patient, and yet steadfast under what was really some very withering criticism from some of the Republicans who really were treating her, you know, as others have mentioned, as kind of a hostile witness, especially when it came to her record in sentencing in criminal cases. And there was something I found quite effective about how she actually seemed quite interested, actually, in explaining in detail how certain aspects of trial judges work. Like, she she actually seemed genuinely wanting to explain the intricacies of how the sentencing guidelines worked to some of the Republican senators, even as they were clearly kind of just asking repeatedly the same questions over and over, not really giving her much chance to speak and, and, and sort of making their own points regardless of, of what her responses were going to be. I think that you know, she came across as just a, a very you know, effective communicator uh, throughout the week.
0: So I was a studio buddy for National Public Radio. That is actually the official title that's, that gets reprinted on my freelancer's check. So, but I had a slightly different <laughs> different vantage point. I'm in what they call the sky boxes on the floor above the hearing room separated by a plexiglass divider so that we can see the hearing room, but they can't hear us when we're talking on the radio, uh, although we were mostly talking during the breaks. And so you can look down, you have kind of the eagle's eye view of everything that's going on in the hearing room, you know having not been in the room for now Justice Barrett's confirmation hearings, but been there for all of the other ones in recent memory. And the room you know, was much, you know, although Katie said, the room was full, but it was much less full than it had been because of COVID. All of the chairs were sort of you know, a couple of feet apart. There were far fewer reporters than they usually pack into the hearing room. And, you know, the audience was, was probably more diverse than it had been with some of the recent nominees. So it was, was really interesting to have this sort of eagle's eye view of the dynamics, watching the senators sort of move around as the, the witnesses were talking and as the senators were speaking as well. Um, let's move into a little bit of substance what, if anything, did
1: you learn about Judge Jackson during the course of the hearings? I was, um, I mean, I had listened to her a couple of times on the DC circuit, but I um, hadn't heard her speak at length other than, you know, the flute, the few clips that we have. So as a, as a journalist clipping her speaking very slowly was challenging because I had to find sound bites, but um I I just learned how her brain works, I think, a lot more. Um, You see a little bit bit of it during oral argument in the D.C. Circuit when she asks questions, Um, but we just didn't have as much to listen to from her like we did from Kavanaugh, for example. And so hearing her respond, particularly on the third day as um, Senator Ossoff, but then Senator Tillis and some others just peppered her with questions of all different areas of the law from the first amendment to the fourth amendment to trademark law to um, just all kinds of stuff, watching her brain respond and, and understand what a grasp she has on American law, which of course she, she prepared for this hearing, but um, you know, we prepare for the bar exam and (laughs) there's no way I could have even, even with all of that law crammed in for those two weeks right before the exam, I couldn't have um, done that nor should should I have been as as good as she is, who's been a judge for the past 10 years, but watching her brain work and watching her with ease bounce from one legal topic to the other and explain it and explain how the law works um, to the American people who were watching um, in simple terms. One is what I aspire to do as a journalist, but two, I think was just really fascinating to just watch the brain on display, which is really the purpose of these hearings, although that gets... Um, taken away by some of the politicking, but I, I just, I, it was enjoyable to watch her brain work in those ways. It, it was more so on the third day, I think, once everybody had expressed their, or for the most part, their, their political points in, in day two.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, w- one concrete piece of information that we did learn for the first time had to do with the upcoming Harvard affirmative action case that the Supreme Court is going to hear this fall. And there had been discussions about whether Jackson ought to recuse herself from that case, if she's confirmed to the Supreme Court, because she currently serves on Harvard's Board of Overseers. And Ted Cruz asked her whether she plans to recuse. And she simply answered, like, very straightforwardly, yes, I plan to recuse, without further elaboration. I don't think she had to say that. She could have easily just said, well, I will, you know, look at, you know, the recusal standards, you know, when... And if i'm confirmed and make the decision later um, but she simply answered like quite straightforwardly that yes she'll recuse in that case it might not make a huge difference for the substantive issue because the supreme court at the same time will also be hearing a separate case about affirmative action at the university of north carolina which presumably she could hear that case but nonetheless, I think it is important that she, you know, she, she did note her plans to recuse in the Harvard case. Um, that was like the only like actual substantive piece of information that she provided about any uh, pending cases before the court. As all nominees do these days, she generally avoided, you know, making any commitments or, or weighing in on her specific views about uh, issues before the court
0: and i was sort of surprised that it took as long as it did for that question to come up it only came Shame. up on the second round of questions and right. you know ted cruz is kind of in the middle of the questioning and you know certainly journalists had spent a lot of time talking to people about whether or not she had to recuse you know thinking and writing about exactly what the role of the board of overseers is is it is the role such that she might have to recuse and when the question came up, she just said, yep, gonna recuse. Um, <laughs> it's all one of those things, kind of like writing about the nominees who don't get selected. You kind of wish you had that time back.
2: If you remember back in the Barrett hearings, there was a huge focus from Democrats about whether Barrett re- recuse in any election cases related to Donald Trump's potential challenges to, to, an, 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 to the election results. And Barrett didn't give any substantive commitments about that. She just said she would assess the issue if it came up. And so in in contrast, yeah, there was very little discussion about the the Harvard case. I think, uh, you know, a big part of that is probably because the perception is that whether she recuses or not, her vote probably wouldn't affect the outcome of the case. I think there's an expectation that a majority of the court is is uh, somewhat. Uh, skeptical about the use of affirmative action in higher education, but of course, we'll we'll find out more next next fall when the uh, when the, the court hears the case.
0: So let's turn to another big picture question, and James, we'll start with you this time. What were some of the highlights or themes of the week?
2: Look, I, I would say there were two main themes, and um, they alternated between whether the Republicans were questioning her or whether the Democrats were. Um, The Republicans started off the week by promising to treat the hearings with respect and decorum and by the end of the day on Thursday, I'm not sure that respectful is the the first word that would come to mind for for a lot of the the very hostile and withering questions um, that they threw her way. Um, and, And so they certainly were attempting to undermine her by critiquing her sentencing records, particularly in cases involving uh child sexual abuse materials and people convicted of those sorts of crimes it, it became sort of a recurring thing with many of the same cases and issues just repeatedly coming up and you know we, we should say that as many experts have pointed out jackson's sentencing in these cases is very much in line with the vast majority of federal judges both in her district and nationwide but i think that there was you know uh, you know, the, the the critiques from the Republicans, I thought, were more harsh than I expected them to be at the beginning of the week. And the theme on the Democratic side, I think, was, of course, very different. And it really had to do with the historic nature of this nominee. And it's just, you know, obviously an enormous deal that she appears to be headed, headed to confirmation as the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. I think at the end of day, at the end of Wednesday's hearing, Cory Booker spoke at length in very emotional terms, comparing Jackson to Harriet Tubman, calling her an American hero, talking about how she personifies, you know, America's better angels. And Jackson was visibly moved to tears. And I think whatever you think about the politics surrounding the Supreme Court, whatever you think about Jackson. Booker's speech and her response was really quite poignant. And if she is confirmed as expected, it will be an, a momentous moment in the history of the court and in American history.
1: I couldn't put that final point more eloquently than James. I'll say I was I was sitting about three rows directly behind her when uh, Senator Booker was doing that. And uh, I could see him directly on and I could see her right behind me and had a clear view. And it was, um, you know, the journalists at our table, everyone kept clacking and at their computer, everyone was busy, but everyone else in the room was quite wrapped at that moment. It was another one of those intense moments where it felt like kind of the oxygen just left the room briefly. could feel uh, it was palpable but i to, to get a a little bit nerdier on a theme or a highlight i think that we saw Um, or at least the American people got to see the tension in separation of powers. And what I mean by that is um, even in the back and forth with Republicans talking about um, sentencing in child pornography cases, you know, her initial explanation was I, she kept saying, I'm in my, I, I stay in my lane and her lane as a judge, as she put it, is constrained by the constitution, but also by what Congress says. And so in a lot of her back and forth with senators, it was, you know, Senator, I am constrained here to do, to look at the factors that Congress has given us and Congress has not changed them. And there was an interesting exchange with Holly when they were talking about mandatory minimum sentencing. And he said, you know, she said, mandatory minimum is discretionary. And that's actually from a Supreme Court decision. And Holly said, well, Congress wanted that to be mandatory. And so we saw saw the tension there between the court and, and Congress. And we saw it again, talking about, um, when Ben Sass was talking about cameras in the courtroom and he said, I think that is squarely within Article three's decision for itself. But if I could just encourage you not have cameras in the courtroom, this is my thinking, but this is not our job to tell the nine whether to do that. And so I think the American people, at least in different snippets in a very nerdy way, got to see the tension there between the two bodies also, by the way, this whole process is a part of that, that the advice and consent role being carried out by this body right now in order to confirm a member of the Article 3 courts. I think it's just you know fascinating uh, American political and constitutional moment for people to, to watch. And we saw it come out in different ways in her arguing back and forth, not arguing, but explaining back and forth with the Republicans, but also in some of the other topics that came up.
0: And that actually goes to my next question, because after these confirmation hearings, you often hear discussions about whether or not these confirmation hearings are kabuki theater, whether or not the process is broken. And from my perspective, at least, I think that depends on what you think the function of these hearings is in the first place. And you know, if you think of them as having a couple of different functions, and one of the functions is the opportunity for the process to sort of educate the american people about what the issue, what the supreme court does and what the important issues are before the supreme court and for as you mentioned you know senators to talk to the nominees because once they're on the court you know the senators don't necessarily have an opportunity to sort of quote unquote lobby the justices they certainly can't tell them what to do on these issues and the justices don't often come before Congress they come every couple of years before the House Budget Committee and they do a little bit of lobbying about issues like cameras in the courtroom then but those opportunities are relatively far and few between and so in that sense you know these hearings do serve an important purpose you know if you just think about the hearings as an opportunity to figure out what Amy Coney Barrett or Katanji Brown Jackson thinks about abortion you know, You're probably not gonna think that they're particularly satisfying, you know. I also, you know, think that I asked you about whether or not you learned anything new. Well, that's because you spent a lot of time going into the confirmation hearings, reading about Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, you know, what she'd written, watching videos of her. But the average person, of course, doesn't do that. Yeah,
1: this is their opportunity to learn about Ketanji Brown Jackson. I think that's right. I think um, all week my north star, I tried to make. in our DMV region, that's who I was talking to with Fox five was they, they don't, they haven't read everything that we've read. What, what's the takeaway? What did, what did we learn about her today that they need to know about? Not even to necessarily lobby their senators, but just to understand what's happening with the court and who she is and who she's going to be. Because to your point, Amy, that's in my mind where you can see value in these, in this vapid and hollow charade.
0: So Katie, what's next for judge Jackson and the confirmation process?
1: Well, I believe the Democrats were hoping to move to a vote on Monday in March um, out of committee, but um, it just takes one Republican to kick that can at least one week down the road. So I would expect based on their interactions this past week, that would happen. So then the committee vote would likely be a week later in April. And if the committee divides down the middle, 11-11, which It's possible. It's probable. I don't know. It doesn't appear that Lindsey Graham, who had supported her to the DC circuit, will be offering that um, same support this go around. So if the committee splits 11 11 to 11, then the majority leader is going to need to call for a Senate vote, a full Senate vote to get her out of committee and onto the executive calendar. But I don't believe from the folks I've talked to that that should disrupt the timeline. So then the full Senate would be able to vote for her. A week later, so we're looking at a, a mid-ish April confirmation vote on the full floor of the Senate
0: but then she wouldn't actually join the court until late June early July when the
1: term ends and Justice
0: Breyer officially steps down
1: right his 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 letter was pending the successful confirmation after the court rises for the summer so um, June or July depending on how late they push <laughs> compared to previous years.
2: Hey, so I know that that none of us are congressional reporters, but I'm curious whether either of you think that she will get any Republican votes on the floor.
0: I think she might. I think she might too. She's not going to get many, but I think she might.
2: Yeah. So there were three Republicans who voted for her confirmation to the D.C. Circuit, Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins. I think Graham is probably lost. I don't think he's going to vote for her based on his questioning, but yeah. I think think you can take the
0: probably out. Yeah. I think that's right.
2: (laughs) But I think you could see, I, I could see Murkowski and Collins voting for her. Maybe someone like a Mitt Romney might come on board. And we should say that just before we recorded this on the afternoon of Friday, March 25th, Joe Manchin indicated that he plans to vote for her. He's, one of the Democrats who at least in theory was in question, although I don't think anyone expected him to to vote against her, but he officially confirmed
0: that he will vote for her. That's right, that's right, so stay tuned. Meanwhile, as I said at the outset, there was plenty of non-confirmation related news. Justice Thomas was discharged from the hospital on Friday after almost a full week there. He was admitted to Sibley Memorial Hospital in DC, we learned on Sunday night, with flu-like symptoms and was receiving antibiotics for what the court described as an infection, but that is literally all we know. The court's public information office said on Sunday night that it expected him to be released in a day or two, but he was not released until Friday morning. The court, when they told us that he had been released, did not provide any additional information about Thomas's illness, despite many requests um, from many reporters. So this presents a whole set of issues about transparency. And this is a long time bugaboo for reporters covering the court. Um, Just for starters, there's a real question about whether they would have told us anything if the court hadn't been scheduled to hear oral argument on Monday morning.
2: Yeah, I think we should assume that they wouldn't have told us. And the reason I assume that is because the chief was hospitalized last year after he fell and hit his head. And the court did not tell anyone for several weeks until the Washington Post got a tip about it and was preparing to write a story. And so the court is not forthcoming when the justices have health issues. And I think that's a very serious problem. Many of these justices are in their their 60s and 70s, and the public deserves to know when they're having major health issues or even minor health issues. For the court to not be forthcoming about things like hospitalizations, as we're recording on Friday, we have found out that Thomas hasn't been discharged from the hospital, but we still don't know anything about his condition. We don't know his diagnosis. We don't know why he was there. I think there has been some reporting that he didn't have COVID, but that's really all the information we have. And um, the course should do better on this. There's no excuse for it.
1: If for any other reason to keep TMZ from disrupting Justice Breyer's Friday afternoon lunch at Cafe Milano, <laughs> <laughs> and for the rest of us learning additional information from TMZ, although they have shoe leather reporting tactics. So
0: But the Clarence Thomas health story has to a certain extent been eclipsed by the Ginny Thomas January 6th story. So Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has long been a conservative activist, but on Thursday news outlets reported on text messages between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows who was the chief of staff to former president Donald Trump in which Ginny Thomas urged Mark Meadows to continue to pursue efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And reporting suggests that Ginny Thomas may have spoken with Clarence Thomas about it, even as the court was hearing cases related to the election. So this has long been something that has driven liberals crazy. The idea that Ginny Thomas is a conservative activist Lobbying on issues that are sort of, you know, in the Supreme Court's purview, you know, lobbying on issues related to the Affordable Care Act, for example. You know, the counter argument is that she's allowed to have a career. But this is a much more serious set of issues. You know, you're talking about lobbying the president's chief of staff to take action to pursue efforts to overturn the 2020 election when there are election-related cases coming before the court. And, you know, I I imagine we are going to learn more about this. I think one of the things I'd want to highlight is that it, it, again, brings attention to the issue that the Supreme Court justices make individual decisions about whether or not to recuse from specific cases and that the Supreme Court justices, unlike other federal judges, are not subject to a code of ethics.
2: Yeah, and Amy, I, I would add that it's not just that election cases were coming up to the Supreme Court at the same time that Jenny Thomas was privately texting Mark Meadows. Another wrinkle here is that earlier this year, the Supreme Court weighed in on an emergency case involving Congress's attempt to obtain White House records related to the January 6th insurrection, including records like text messages. And incidentally, or coincidentally, depending on your view, Clarence Thomas was the lone public dissenting justice from the Supreme Court's decision, allowing Congress to obtain those records. He dissented without explanation in that case. And I think that there are recusal issues raised by all of this. Obviously, spouses are allowed to have separate careers and separate lives. No one disputes that. And without even taking a position on whether Clarence Thomas is impartial or has the ability to be impartial, that is not the standard for recusal. The standard for recusal in federal law is not just whether someone actually is impartial, it's whether someone's whether a judge's or a judges or justices impartiality could reasonably be questioned. And my view is that justices should err on the side of recusal anytime there is any plausible argument about whether impartiality could be questioned. And the fact that this recent disclosure is already causing so much controversy and so much debate, I think shows that whether or not you think Thomas's impartiality is undermined by the activities of his spouse, at least it should be clear that reasonable people might question his impartiality. You know, like we were discussing with the, the Jackson refusal uh, you know, issue earlier about the Harvard case, you know, I, I think there's a strong argument that, that, that justices really should, like I said, err on the side of recusal when possible, especially because, you know, psychological studies have shown that people are ver- are not good judges of their own biases. Even if you really feel in your heart of hearts that you can consider a case neutrally and impartially when it's just left up to you, as it is in the case in the Supreme Court, you know, people are not good assessors of, of their own psychologies. And yeah, I think this is another area for improvement.
0: I do not think this is the end of this story. So stay tuned. And finally, we could have devoted an entire podcast to the Supreme court's orders and opinions this week, because down the street from the Hart Senate office building at the Supreme court, the justices were busy on Wednesday, the justices threw out a ruling by the Wisconsin Supreme court, that adopted a redistricting plan submitted by the state's Democratic governor, Tony Evers. Remember that after the 2020 census, all the states have to go back to the drawing board and redraw their legislative maps. So Evers' map would have increased the number of majority black districts in Wisconsin's legislature from six to seven, but the US Supreme Court said that the state court was wrong to use race to choose a map. Justice Sonia Sotomayor dissented Uh, In an opinion that was joined by Elena Kagan, she called the Supreme Court's ruling unprecedented. In a case called Ramirez versus Collier, the Supreme Court ruled that a Texas inmate can have his pastor touch him and pray out loud while he is being executed. The issue of spiritual advisors in the execution chamber is one that the justices have grappled with for nearly three years. The Supreme Court urged the, the states in its opinion, to adopt clear rules for the future and told federal courts that they should allow executions to go forward with religious accommodations when necessary. And then finally, in a case called Houston Community College versus Wilson, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected the claim of a community college trustee who argued that the Board of Trustees had retaliated against him for exercising his freedom of speech, that decision was unanimous. That is another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thank you so much for joining us and staying until the end. Thank you, James and Katie, for joining us. Thanks so much for having us, Amy. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. No rest for the weary. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.